Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you are here this morning. Listen, I have something I want to tell you. God is real. He has a story and a plan, and you are an important part of what he is doing in the world. That's why we are bringing together people like Jennifer Smith this morning and Dr. Jonathan King. Dr. Jonathan King is a professor with, with Family Discipleship Ministry. He is also a covenant partner of our congregation, so you may know J.K. and his wife Charm and their, their children Liam and their new baby Eleanor. Um, but what you may not know is that Jonathan has just returned from an experience on the mission field, and I was so taken by some of the stories he told me just a couple, uh, just about a week and a half ago, that I sort of impulsively invited him to come and to preach with us this morning. Now I know that Jonathan's a great speaker, so that wasn't too much of a risk. But I also knew that he had some powerful things to share with you all this morning, and I wanted us to be able to share in in what he was doing, in what God is doing through his life, and and think about how that even connects to your life this morning and how you are being called to be a part of that story and that plan that God is working on here through First Presbyterian Church and in our city. So if you would, please welcome to the pulpit this morning, Dr. Jonathan King. Jonathan? Good morning. And happy Lord's Day. It's an honor for me to be with you today, with you all today, or should I say y'all, like my dear brother Joe, I'm from Philadelphia, home of the couldn't get the job done Phillies and couldn't get the job done Eagles, so I'm still getting used to the southern vernacular. Today I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. As we turn to Luke chapter 13, I invite you to read along with me. Starting in verse 18. He, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. 
And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some, at la some uh, are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray, please. Oh Lord, we ask of you today that you would speak to us through your eternal word, that you would impress your truths on us about the kingdom of God. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, of our hearts together, be holy and acceptable to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The kingdom of God is, of course, a major theme, perhaps a central theme of Jesus' teaching. Speaking of kingdom, or at least the idea of a king, here's a fun fact about San Antonio. Exactly 200 years ago today, San Antonio had a king. And exactly 200 years ago tomorrow, San Antonio did not have a king. I invite you to talk to our dear friend, Rick Lane, if you'd like to know more about the history on that. Now, let's talk about the king. Starting off in verse 18, Jesus says, Jesus says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? The therefore here ties in directly to the passage before this in which Jesus shames the ruler of a synagogue for his hypocrisy and for his indignation. All directed at Jesus because he healed a woman on the Sabbath. The woman had been physically disabled for 18 years, a, condi a condition Jesus attributes to her being bound by the power of Satan. Here's the point. The nature of the kingdom Jesus tells us about next in verses 18 to 21 relates directly to the authority and power of Jesus to restore a stooped back and demonized woman, one who lived on the margins of society for many long years. In effect, Jesus begins verse 18 this way. In light of what I just did, let me pose this question to you. Jesus wanted to disabuse the people of their false views and expectations about the coming kingdom. The general thinking was that the Messiah would establish the kingdom of God as a warrior king, one who would defeat the forces of evil and bring in the salvation for his people. There were various expectations and strategies uh, different groups of people in Israel had about how to get ready for the coming of the kingdom. For the Pharisees, their strategy meant purity of devotion to God, which for them meant a slavish devotion to the purity rituals that they piled up and piled on. 
For the Sadducees, their strategy was to play nicey-nicey with the Roman government, accommodate working with the Romans, working with the Romans as much as possible. For the group called the Essenes, their strategy meant separating themselves altogether from everyone else they deemed irredeemably defiled. And for the Zealots, their strategy was for Israel to rise up and retaliate, revolt against the Romans. Whatever the differences on how the kingdom of God would come about, the common expectation was that when God finally stepped in to enthrone his Davidic king and bring in his kingdom, it would happen suddenly. Suddenly, human rulers would be punished and banished. Suddenly, God would cleanse the world of sin and bring forgiveness. Suddenly, God would pour out his spirit and bring about a wonderful new creation. What Jesus is really doing here is teaching the people a right view of the kingdom of God, one with a surprising timeline, a surprising way the kingdom would come about, and of course, a surprising king. The whole point of the first parable in verse 19 about the growth from mustard seed to large tree is not an arboreal one. It's a deeply spiritual one. Its meaning has to do with the power inherent in the seed that's at work making it grow. Likewise, the point of the Jesus comparison of the yeast and the kingdom is not about how yeast can permeate such a large quantity of flour, quite a hefty amount, something like 50 pounds, but about the power inherent in the yeast that's at work enabling it to do this. Both parables teach us a right view of the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, do not let the seemingly small start of God's kingdom fool you. Implicit in Jesus' answer is his call for us to trust in God's plan. Here's the spiritual point. Even though the kingdom of God starts out looking rather insignificant, the power of God continues at work in the world to advance his kingdom. God's plan, according to God's timetable, is advancing all around the world, and it's unstoppable. As Bob mentioned, recently I went on a mission trip to Cuba where I witnessed firsthand God's kingdom advancing mightily. This present-day move of God can be traced back to the 1950s when a group of pastors from the U.S. and Canada came to Cuba and started eight churches together. The communists took control in 1959, and the first thing they did was kick out all the foreigners. The Cuban Christians took up the work where these pastors I just mentioned had started. Come the 1960s, the government uh, outlawed the establishment of any new churches of any denomination. All the independent churches were forced to register themselves as a kind of council. That original group of eight churches came together to form the Good News Council. Fast forward to the 1980s, 
the Lord stirred up a powerful move of the Spirit throughout Cuba. The churches were completely un underprepared to receive all the people that the Lord was bringing in. A good problem to have, most assuredly. But we have to realize there is no advance of the kingdom of God in the absence of the spiritual battle raging on all around. Exhibit A for the kingdom of darkness. In 1991, Fidel Castro proclaimed that the official religion of Cuba was atheism. Exhibit B for the kingdom of light. Right about this time, a home church movement in Cuba sprung up and was just thriving. Pastor Fernando Rodriguez was a part of this home church movement. He's a, a dear friend and ministry partner of the ministry I work for, Family Discipleship Ministries. What started out originally as eight churches under the Good News umbrella has multiplied over the years to 305 churches. And not just the Good News churches, the Baptist churches, Assemblies of God churches, all across the board, God is growing and advancing his church there. It's a demonstration of the power of God at work in Cuba now. There's a real hungering and thirsting for the word of God, a healthy sense of the fear of God, and an overall spiritual commitment as God's people. No mistaking it, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. To be sure, the advance of the kingdom of God involves ministering to the whole person, body and soul. Recall earlier how Jesus brought both physical and spiritual relief to a woman who was in physical and spiritual torment. With that same mindset, the Christians I saw in Cuba are exceptionally resourceful, working together to help minister to the struggling families in their midst. As one example, in 2005, the Lord provided Pastor Fernando with farmland his church was able to purchase from the government. He told the government that he needs the land to develop a self-sustaining farm to help take care of those in critical need. He did all this stepping out in faith, trusting the Lord for his will to be done. And lo and behold, the government agreed to this. So because of Fernando's willingness to step out in faith, Children and adults in churches and communities all over Cuba are receiving much-needed food and much-needed medicine they otherwise could not get. Even during the pandemic, his church was able to distribute something like six tons of mangoes to the surrounding communities. Fernando looks for opportunities to step out in faith, since much of the farmland in Cuba is not being productively used, the government is now allowing him to secure additional land, land that he'll use to help meet the needs of God's people and the surrounding communities. This is how the power of the kingdom of God is displayed. Through God's people, as they live by faith, living out their faith. So just who will enter the kingdom? 
In verse, 20, verse 23 starts off with a rather curious question. Someone asks Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Given the messianic expectation for the Jewish people, most likely what is meant here is, who among us Jews are the saved remnant? Or to put it more straight up, who is it that gets in the kingdom of God? Jesus doesn't deal with any of the things the Jewish people may have had in their mind uh, about this. Things like their Jewish ancestry and their claim of Abraham as their father. How well one keeps the commandments. How, how devout one is, at least externally, in devotion to God. Or how scrupulously they maintain keep it separate from the spiritually unclean Gentiles. What Jesus says instead, in verse 24, is strive to enter the narrow door. For many, he says, will seek to enter and will not be able. The moral of the story is this. Do not be late in deciding to respond to Jesus. For there's only one narrow door, and that narrow door is Jesus. In, Je in Jesus saying this, he's demanding our complete allegiance, the complete surrender to him of our life for his. If you don't come in through this door, once that door is shut, you'll be permanently shut out of the kingdom of God. A true follower of Jesus thus strives to enter through the narrow door to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. The idea of striving here is to struggle through, to make every effort, to exert one's maximum effort because of the supreme importance of attaining entry into the kingdom of God. This has absolutely nothing to do with earning your salvation by your own efforts. And it has everything to do with placing all your hope in Jesus. Through Jesus and Jesus alone is one saved from the wrath of God. Only through Jesus does one become a true child of God. Only through Jesus does one gain eternal life. The truth is, Jesus' message concerning those who would enter the kingdom of God through the narrow door means nothing less than being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. You could say that one's performance actually does count when it's understood as a surrendering of ourselves to Christ, a surrendering of our life's agenda for his agenda, a surrendering of our self-dependence for complete dependence on him. The people spoken of here who ate and drank in Jesus' presence and listened to his teaching, teaching have not really surrendered their life to him. That is the one common denominator between all those who are bona fide citizens of the kingdom of God. They've bet their life on Jesus. They've bet their life now and their life eternal and they hold on to him for dear life. A true disciple of Christ has no backup plan. The way we live our life now 
shows what we're really placing our trust in. Any backup plan you put your trust in before trusting Jesus, whether based on wealth or education, your social status or connections, social connections, talents and experience, your drive to succeed, or even just your drive to survive. All such things will in the end disappoint and in the end have no spiritual value. Let me give two beautiful examples of men who really inspired me, actually inspired and convicted, convicted me in my my trip uh, to Cuba. Soon after the communists uh, took control in Cuba, many students in Bible colleges there were put in forced labor camps. One of these students is Fernando's father-in-law, who at that time was a young pastor whom the Communist Party threw into prison for five years. They constantly tried various means to brainwash him and break his spirit, to get him to recant his Christian faith, basically try to get him to give in to them or give up and die. During all the terrible kinds of treatment he received, he said he focused his mind on Scripture, Scripture he had memorized, and the Lord used that to preserve his mind, to preserve his soul even. He has stories of how the Lord arranged all kinds of miraculous protection for him throughout his prison time. And And when he was released after five years, he returned to being a pastor and kept living sold out for the Lord, something he's still doing till this very day. Another example is Fernando's brother, who back in the day was one of the best university students in Cuba and a leader of the young Communist Party. The government had great plans for him, but when he became a Christian, the government put him in an institution and gave him electroshock therapy to erase his short-term memory. They wanted to return his memory back to his communist ideology. When he was finally let out of the institution, Fernando said his brother walked around for a year like a robot because of the damage to his nerves. But in time, the Lord restored his mind. And in the best irony, best irony, he said, the only thing that God erased in his mind was his communist ideology. Most importantly, the Lord completely restored Fernando's brother, and to this very day, he's serving the Lord in the body of Christ in Cuba. The conferences we did in Cuba were all about equipping God's people with a clear understanding and strategy for being a disciple and discipling others. Many were convinced of the importance of discipleship and hungry for the tools we were offering. In talking with these Christians, I'd say the things that mark their lives are the same things that mark the lives of the Christians we read about in Acts chapter 2. It's nothing more than what we're all called to live out in practice. They devote themselves to the teaching of the word and praying together, to opening their homes often 
in hospitality and fellowship with other believers and to sharing whatever they can with those in need. Through our time in Cuba, they were further convicted of the need for Christ to be kept central in their marriages and parenting. The Christians I saw in Cuba, in Cuba took doing these things together very seriously. And the joy of the Lord was plain for all to see. So what happens to those who don't enter through the narrow gate? Who in practice devote themselves to things other than Christ? In verses 27 and 28, the master of the house declares this to those who ate and drank in his presence and listened to his teaching. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. What a tragic and horrible picture here. The people are rejected from entering the kingdom of God and ejected to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's meant to sound awful, and it is. Because the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth describes a conscience burning and gnawing with shame and remorse. A conscience that will never experience rest, never feel peace. That's why being rejected from the kingdom of God is the worst fate imaginable. Yet this passage, passage finishes on a joyful note. Verses 29 and 30. And the people will come from the east and the west, and from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The banquet, banquet imagery of reclining at table in the kingdom of God is just a way of describing the fellowship and celebration of the people of God in the kingdom to come. In verse 30, the language, of, the language that some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last simply means that some who expect to be in the kingdom of God will not. And while others not expect it to be in the kingdom of God, will be. So the question Jesus gives answer to here is not really, will those who are saved be few? But rather, will you yourself be among the saved remnant? I want to challenge you, challenge all of us, Take time to take stock of your life. What things in your life compete for your trust in the Lord? What things do you give priority to that compete with your relationship with, to Christ? What things on your agenda are you just not willing to surrender yet to follow the Lord's agenda for your life? Brothers and sisters, knowing that the spiritual battle and attacks rage on all around us 
Let us strive to be more soldierly, less civilian, more awake, less drowsy, more expectant, less complacent. Pressing forward, then, let us be straining with all our effort, each of us and all of us together, as pilgrims in this world, living out our identity as citizens in the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Lord, you call us to strive to enter the kingdom in our own in our own strength not only will we not want to strive we don't have the strength to strive you are the door as we humble ourselves to you you direct our path you give us the strength to to serve you to be that light in this world to be part of the of the body of Christ advancing the kingdom of God in this world until the day that you return. Father, take, take what we've heard today, minister it to our hearts, stir us up, reinvigorate us in ways, whichever ways we need, that we'd be pleasing to you as we live out our calling as your disciples in this world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.